You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It's, uh, this is I Love You Keep Going. It is September 21st, 2023 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, what I wanted to talk about tonight was the self-experience and the origin of the self-experience and also to tie it into the, the uh, one of the things that happens in stream entry in Theravada Buddhism is that you see that the self-experience is insubstantial. And that's one of the aspects of it. If you uh, are, if I remind you of your... Uh, Theravada um, enlightenment structure, it's a it's a four-path model. The first path is called stream entry, and it's the eradication of three of the ten fetters. The first is that you recognize that religious ceremony and enlightenment are not really the same thing. Uh, that you uh, see through the self-experience and uh, understand it as insubstantial and you uh, eradicate the the uh, better of skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is a particular type of doubt that applies to the belief in the Buddhist path of liberation. Um, skeptical doubt arises very, very commonly in uh, new practitioners one of the th things that I uh, spent uh, part of today talking about to uh, new uh, practitioners, um, one of the things about doing the attachment work is that often it draws people who uh, have uh, uh, an interest in understanding why they have such difficulty in forming uh, attachment and forming functioning relationships. And so when they begin a meditation path, which they haven't encountered before, uh, a lot of the initial part of the meditation practice is uh, engaging in the development of concentration without doing the practices that develop concentration. You don't have the capacity to stay with the objects of meditation that we would recommend well enough that you can actually have the insights that we're recommending that you try to uh, explore. And so it creates a, a sense of futility in doing the practice. And at the same time, it's very hard to convince people to start at the beginning and develop the concentration because they want to jump right into the advanced uh, practices. It's one of the uh, aspects, I think, of our our Western culture where we, we really don't... Uh, Somehow, in in the short attention spans we've all developed through the various technologies that have come along, can't uh, bear the idea that we have to start at the beginning and be a novice and go through all of that <laughs> difficulty learning. Uh, and yet, it creates all of these problems that wouldn't you wouldn't have if you would just start at the beginning. Anyway. Um, Please start at the beginning, and it's okay to be a novice. Uh, it reminds me when I was um, in uh, 
seventh grade, I discovered the term virgin and understood it to be someone who had not had sex. So I was running around and I was telling everybody that I was a virgin and I was so, so excited about having found out something about the world. And then uh, one of my buddies pulled me aside and said, you know, it, it's a shameful thing for a man to be a virgin and you should stop telling people that. Uh, it is not a shameful thing to be a new meditator. It's a wonderful thing. You're going to discover a whole world that's marvelous. Uh, but it's not possible to discover it if you can't concentrate well enough to see what it is that we're talking about. So that would be the beginning piece. When we talk about the self-experience arising, for most of us, the experience is so embedded and so compelling and so convincing that we don't see any cracks in it. And one of the reasons for that is that it starts so early. And we, in fact, are not really the authors of that early selfing experience or that foundational selfing experience. We are the recorders of it. We're born, uh, human babies are born unbelievably dependent on their caregivers and their brains are uh, partially formed and the skull isn't really fused. Uh, there's a new controversy about this theory and so I'm going to wait and see um, how they slug it out. But the old idea is that the brain is underdeveloped because... Uh, a fully developed brain would not pass through the birth canal. Uh, the brain is unfused and the skull is soft because uh, uh, it a fused brain and a rigid skull would not also be able to flex, be able to pass through the birth canal. Uh, it's no longer a settled idea. <clears throat> But we are born with an intact brain stem, the, the rudimentary formations of a, a right hemisphere and not much in the way of left hemisphere because a lot of the functionality that we can use to grasp and understand our environment requires the development of these uh, structures in the brain. We don't, we have a very slow uh, beginning in life. One of the early aspects of life uh, for us, uh, because we were so dependent on the care for other people, is to understand everything uh, that happens to us as a reflection of the caregiver's experience of us. So that early origin of the sense of self comes from the reflection of our caregiver's experience of us as uh, infants. We manifest whatever it is, the gestures that we make, the expressions that we make as the, as the result of the experience of being in the body that we're in. And then we see the response to that expression reflected to us on the face of the caregiver, mirrored to us. And then we take in that information and it, it, it uh, creates a, a, a 
dialogue really between us and the caregiver, depending on how they respond to it. So that if you have a resourced caregiver who has energy and uh, a sense of uh, engagement and delight in who you are as an infant and the expressions you make, and they take care of you in a way that uh, conveys to you that you're this delightful, loved, uh, wonderful, innocent creature, then that becomes the origin, the foundation of the self-experience that you develop. But that doesn't happen to all infants. If your caregiver is stressed and depleted and uh, frightened of resources and all of the other things that happen to so many uh, people, then what's reflected back to us is that worry and that sense of demand and that sense of overwhelm. And then we create these experiences of self as being overwhelming and demanding, needy, unsafe. So one of the things about this, and, it, and I, I want to point this out in such a way that you really begin to investigate this is that we create these realities and we create the sense of self as it arises. And the foundation of that is those early experiences and then we build out on that. When you go out into the world, each of us has a, a particular set of skills, a particular set of sensibilities that come really with the body and the way that we form our interactions with the the world around us and how we form those expressions of that unique sensibility that's just ours and how the environment around us reacts to that uh, expression of that unique sensibility, that wonder, that natural innocence that we are as children. And uh, that reaction also is uh, the thing that gets embedded into the experience of self. And we carry that with us as these, these um, I like to call them gists, these algorithms. Uh, understanding the nature of the way that the human body understands things, the way that it records memory, it isn't what happens that we're attending to, it's what it means to us in each of those moments. And so we begin to remember these, these gists of meaning rather than what happens. Uh, each moment as it arises, we create through this experience of taking in uh, sense data and defining it or adding meaning to it and then creating from that meaning experience, a, a world of meaning that we inhabit. And uh, the self-experience is this pattern or this collection of these gists of these meaning moments that when something happens in the present moment and the self-experience activates, we know that it's us because all of these different uh, combinations of meaning activate 
and we recognize the pattern of it. You're following me so far on this description of what's happening. One of the things about this is that's also so interesting is that because the senses of self activate, these patterns of just activate, and then we are participating in that experience, plus we're participating in the sense of the present moment, and then it's remembered, we, we rarely notice the change in the experience of self over time because the, uh, the subtlety of the addition of the new memories to the, the bundle or the pattern of, of self. Also, the recorder that we're living in, this human body, uh, is also constantly changing. So not only are you remembering things through a different sense capacity of the body, but uh, it's also a different body than when you recorded things uh, years ago or decades ago. So that when the gists uh, activate that were recorded in a child's body, you no longer have a child's body to play the experience. And so it adapts to the body that you currently have. So one of the, 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 the amazing things about the self-experience is each time it arises, we recognize this pattern of experience and we think it's the same self-experience that it's always been. We are the same person that we've always been, even though uh, we're not remotely the same person that we were decades ago. Is that making sense? If you've lived so long. <laughs> so I like to say, you're lucky and you've lived so long <laughs> to be in an aging body. <laughs> so <clears throat> what we want to begin to do is to make an investigation into this so that we can begin to see this process of understanding the nature of self. One of the things that happens with early attachment experiences, of course, is that you begin to form uh, these uh, fixed views or these limited uh, beliefs. And this is often very true about the experience of self. We believe that the self has these capacities and these incapacities, and we don't really challenge them. And if they've started way, way back in that early crucible of the uh, reflections of the caregiver, they may or may not be accurate. They may not, may or may or not, may or may not be true, and that we really need to begin a process of investigating them and understanding that the self-experience as it arises in each moment arises based on the conditions of the present moment is not consistent, is not constant, is not unchanging. In fact, every time you have a self-experience, it's changed in the sense that the previous self-experience has been remembered in this succession of remembering the self-experience. Is that also making sense? So we do not take in an, an an even survey of everything that's out there and then form an understanding of what's happening. But in the West, we're really trained or conditioned as, as uh, uh, kids 
that that is in fact what we're doing, and it comes from Aristotle and comes from Euripides. Uh, I like to call them the old Greek guys, but the origin of that idea about Western uh, philosophy and Western society is uh, at the very uh, core of that is that we perceive things accurately and we act on that basis. In Buddhism and in the East, this is, is uh, very different in the way that it's conceptualized. We take in the data, but we don't take in a uniform survey of what's there. We take in the things that we prefer and we leave out everything else. So the mind, uh, one of the six senses, the West we have five, and in Buddhism we have six. The mind, you know, selects... Um, what, what's interesting to us and leaves everything else out. And then we create the experience of uh, reality based on that curated selection of preferences and, and it rolls out. Then we're operating in that. But we also do that with the self-experience. We curate the, the kind of experience that we want. Now, depending on your conditioning, of course, you can go in a couple of directions. You can filter out all of the negativity and have these very idealized views of things. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. Or you can go in the other direction. You can filter out all of the good stuff, and it can be negative, bad, terrible, difficult, unbearable, helpless. And uh, the practice really of investigating this is to begin to see how uh, that view is distorting what's actually uh, present in front of us. The Pali word for that investigation is called tajapanati. It means to constantly turn back toward conceptual reality and compare it to ultimate reality to see whether or not the way that you've created the conscious self-experience of the present moment is an accurate reflection of what's actually happening. Um, ultimate reality, of course, is not what's actually happening, but what our capacity to sense uh, is happening. I like to say, the spectrum of light is this, and we can see this little sliver of it. The spectrum of sound is this, and we can hear this little sliver of it. The spectrum of temperature is this, and we can survive in this tiny sliver of it. And so we have this very uh, um, <laughs> narrow experience. Uh, Uspetsky, do you know who he was, a philosopher? We read him in the 60s. And he, one of the metaphors he used that I quite like is that uh, uh, think of us as creatures that inhabit the space between where the air and the water meet. Uh, and that, that's the band of, of experience that we can map. And so imagine a creature walks into the water and we, we really just see them as varying di dynamiters of circles because that's really all that we can uh, comprehend. Edward? Um, yeah, it's sort of getting ahead or something or other, hopefully not too off, off base, but 
this you know this term you know these Hindu terms sat chit or whatever sat chit ananda and I just I don't know with one of my gurus that he he mentioned that sat chit ananda which I've heard a million times but uh, I guess my comment or question is you know there and I think seem to be having glimpses of it um, of the ananda you know where where there's just where the bliss aspect you know well ramana said ramana <laughs> brahman is real the world is not real the world is brahman eventually you know everything shines with the a kind of a gold like if you go to an island made of gold it's all gold so i'm just i guess it seems to me real that it I, maybe with a level of spiritual development notwithstanding <laughs> attachment problems I, <laughs> yeah there there's a there's a bliss you know there's a you know instead of all the judgments that we're so prone to and not being present there's a there's a divinity about everything you know we don't have to we don't have to trance out into the void but it's just it's just the bliss and that's that's an aspect of the self it's what we are but um Anyway, I'm now maybe that's an advanced level that maybe I've had a glimpse of it, you know. I'll get, but I don't know if you if you have any comment on that. If you don't, that's fine too, because it's like a, a little bit off base, I think. But it, it's on my mind. Well, I think what begins to happen as you practice and you see into the nature of self, and that it's these this uh, temporary uh, creation that arises in response to the conditions of the present moment each time and you don't grab onto it you don't grip onto it uh, you don't believe uh, in in the essential nature of it that that frees you up then to begin to experience the the uh, um uh, other aspects of of experience when we're talking about the self-experience, of course, is if you don't make a self-experience, uh, it is quite blissful, and often there's a sense of sacredness, but there's also no sense of identification with it. So there is no my experience of the bliss of this because there's no sense of self arising. So that it's it is just the the beingness, the blissfulness, the spaciousness the emptiness however people like to describe it but there's no sense of owning it in any way well or i didn't have an experience you. of the self evaporating you know temporarily you know uh, quite recently you know so i mean that's probably you know that seems to equate with you know stream winning or something although i mean i've been into all this stuff for decades but right so i don't i don't know you know how i but I just I'm just saying that there's some kind of an authentic bliss experience coming up, you know, well, whether I have a think I have a self or not. And, you know, it's just interesting to me and how it might all fit in with everything. But that's all. Do you notice the sense of self coming and going? That would be a, a way of uh, uh, beginning to explore this. Or one of the one of the common practices is where is the self located? You do a survey. Where is the self located? Scan the whole body and see if you can 
locate the center, the locus of the sense of self? The correct answer is that you cannot. So just in case you do discover it. <laughs> One of the things that I think is so important about this uh, exploration is that the sense of self is often accompanied by limiting beliefs or limiting identities, which restrict your capacity to see clearly what's in front of you and then distorts the, the choices that you make. So in each moment when we recognize what's there, part of that recognition is uh, forming the intention for an action that you might take in response to it and then taking the action, and then gathering the information or the data that happens from the response uh, of the self and world, uh, often other people, and then using that uh, to uh, reform the next minute and the next intention and the next response. When you begin to get into these rigid senses of self and these rigid uh, views of what's possible in each moment when all of the possibilities that you could choose, every single possibility, every single choice is available to and you could pick anything, uh, the view limits or restricts what you can actually see as possible. So then you pick over and over again from the things that you allow yourself uh, to consider uh, and don't choose from an array of possibility that's there because you don't really register that it's there. You don't think it's possible for yourself. And so that creates these great distortions in the way that you interact to the world around you. So that's one of the things that we want to begin to notice, how we form the experience or how the experience of self arises, and then we monitor that experience. So you have the capacity to sense, and you have mind. Mind selects what you pick. Uh, uh, when the capacity to sense and an object can be sensed, have contact, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, it's evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter? Is there time for a pleasant experience? And then it's compared to the perceptual database. And if there's an entry in the perceptual database that's close enough to the uh, experience of the present moment, then all of the meaning uh, of all of the previously experienced uh, moments that match that patterning attached to the present moment and it rolls into conceptual reality. Uh, so you have the present moment, but all of the meaning that's associated with that kind of experience in the present moment. It's very easy to slip out of the present moment into the memory of, of those kinds of experiences. And then you're operating from this very limited register of what's already happened and all of the possibilities that are different from what's already happened that are associated to the present moment are not uh, a possibility anymore because you don't see them. That's what I'm trying to say. You don't see the present moment anymore because you've slipped into 
the experiences that the, the mind that you've already Sometimes there's <laughs> what's already happened. Yes. Sometimes I mean I I don't know what other word but nostalgia. You know some some kind of smells or or something or sights they trigger like a memory from childhood. You know that and and um, it seems to me that if I can you know experience before I got, you know, freighted with, you know, negative thinking about, you know, life, I can go back. It's like, I can, okay, I'm, I'm sort of re-experience. And even in dreams, interesting dreams, before I got freighted with all this garbage, I can go back and experience, you know, this moment that was pleasant and, and I can equate it somehow or bring it into the present moment, which is similar and somehow like kind of erase you know other things that were you know obstructing or something like that i you know I, it's just not like i'm consciously doing it but it's just sort of like oh okay well it was nice then it's nice now you know no problem or something like that you know? oh yeah i i think that that degree of mentalizing is really what we're going for that sense of this is the meaning that i've associated with this experience of the present moment but i'm in the experience of the present moment knowing that the 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 uh memory of previous experiences are informing um, my relationship to the present moment but i remain in the present moment aware of the distinction between the two that would tend to produce something um, akin to peace or happiness. And that the other piece then, of course, is that the range of possibilities that exist now are not the range of possibilities or what I chose before. So that the, the vast array of possibility in the present moment is experienced moment by moment. and You don't get stuck in the uh, nostalgia of what has to happen because that's what happens. Um, <clears throat> one of the other aspects of this is the restriction of imagination. If there isn't an entry in the database that corresponds closely enough to what's actually happening in the present moment, then we have the capacity to imagine it and make meaning of it. But we can also, uh, early on in childhood, begin the process of restricting the capacity to imagine certain kinds of things because they're unavailable to us. And the painfulness of that lack of availability is managed often by the beginning of restricting um, imagination you no longer imagine that you can have them as a way of protecting yourself from the pain of not being able to get them the frustration of not being able to get them and so we also need to be pay attention to this in the present moment so that we're not uh, limiting or restricting our capacity to see what is available to us in the present moment because it wasn't available to us in the past and again, most of these uh, restrictions in uh, imagination uh, or the process of that restriction happens very early. And so 
uh, it happens before this, the autobiographical capacities, before the self capacities arise in the mind. So uh, as the self capacities move and develop and begin to happen, and you can determine for yourself when that was by thinking back to what your earliest memories are. What, uh, how old were you at that time? Four, five, six, something like that. Uh, our earliest actual memories are different than stories we might have been told about ourselves. You know, the the capacity of the mind to hear a story about something or uh, where we weren't there, and then suddenly, uh, as we re-remember it over and over again, we were there, and then all of a sudden it happened to us as we were telling the story, even though it originally didn't happen to us. Can you pay attention to that tracking? But it's easy uh, to uh, be told about your early childhood experiences and not uh, and no longer differentiate between what was an actual memory that you experienced and what was told to you about what was happening. To see a photograph and then imagine what that would be like. Ed, word. Uh, I don't want to monopolize thinking, uh, but I lately I have dreams of. <laughs> having like a happy social life as a teenager like you know girlfriends um going to concerts and not being painfully self-conscious you know that I, I did not have that you know for what things that doubtless happened much earlier restricted my you know confidence and ability and freedom to explore as a as a teenager and now I'm having dreams and I want to believe that I'm undergoing a healing, whether or not, you know, I'm acting them out in real life, although my social contact is much richer than it had been for a long time. So, um, yeah, it's just like, it's interesting, you know, <laughs> I was a member of the dirt, <laughs> nitty ditty, <laughs> nitty gritty dirt band, uh, saying, we have a great concert for you tonight, you know, kind of poking fun at the old folks, right. they, they wouldn't say something like that. And, you know, just this joy, you know, and happiness of being a teenager, which I did not have, you know. And so anyway, that's for whatever that, that's worth. You know? So, you know, we do the ideal parent figure protocol to begin to layer in visualizations of ideal experiences so that we can create conceptual reality in the present moment based on that. Um as long as you can tell the difference between the imagination and the construction of these uh, memories, um, these experiences, and what actually happened, I don't think of it as too much of a difficulty. In uh, the way that the, the repairs of this often happen is that we begin to imagine the possibilities for us having the things that we want uh, to counteract the belief that we can't have them. The belief that we can't have them is no more true than the belief that we can have them. Um, although that can be hard to convince of somebody uh, who's spent their whole life believing that it, uh, a lot of the things that they want are not possible. Um, because you don't remember when that those experiences over and over again created that view. 
Um, so we visualize the possibility that we can have the things that we want to counteract the view that we can't have them. So that when we create the experience of the present moment based on the references in that database, we can create a conceptual reality where we can have them, which will lead us to attempting to get them uh, and then we get them or we don't get them, which is very different than believing we can't have them. So we make no effort or no gesture to get them. You definitely can't get them if you don't try. If you, if you decide that they're not available to you and, and make no effort to get them, you, you don't get them. It becomes self-reinforcing. But if you uh, change that and so that you can spontaneously go for the things that you want, then you have the possibility of getting them that didn't exist before, which is no guarantee that you'll get them, but you'll be engaged in the process of getting them. And then those visualizations, which are completely uh, manufactured by imagination, are accompanied by the experiences of life where we did try that. And so we gradually move from these uh, completely manufactured visualization experiences into actual experiences of life that we remember. And so this movement out of the restricted views of the restricted uh, self-experience into this very free uh, experience of uh, creating over and over again realities where we can uh, succeed in having the things that we, we find meaning in becomes more and more robust because we make these attempts that we've, we've often been restricting ourselves not to make. And uh, one of the early uh, hindrances uh, or the early um, obstacles to be able to do this is the realization that uh, often uh, the reason that we did not have the things that we wanted to have in our lives was because we didn't try to get them, because we didn't believe that we could have them. And when you pierce that limited belief system, that limited identity system, and, and uh, recognize that actually the capacities to have tried for those things were, was always present, there's a deep uh, sadness that can often arise, a bitterness about uh, having not done it. The upside of that, of course, is you can see that now and you can go for it now. And so you have the possibility of going for it now, which is a sweetness. But the, often uh, when we come out of uh, adverse childhood experiences, uh, there's a, a terrible... I call it the terrible sadness, the, the corrosive bitterness of having not gone for it. You can't really get any of that back is the other piece of it, right? Uh, you can't try for the things that are already lost, but you can try for the things that are available now. And that's the sweetness, and that's what we need to do to really allow the things that are already lost to be lost and to go for the experiences of the present moment which are available to us now.
Um, <clears throat> so part of this is really to recognize in each of the moments when we have a sense of self, the, the sense of ownership, the sense that we're doing, that it's happening to us, all of those things, that that experience is, is arising based on the conditions of the present moment and based on our perceptual database and the habit of creating it in such a way and that it, that you're totally free to challenge that and to recreate it uh, moment by moment in a way that's more uh, in line with what it is that you find meaningful, which is really the place of exploration and discovery, what's meaningful. And then depending, of course, on your attachment conditioning, how well you develop the capacity to explore so that you may find that you don't explore so well and then you need to begin to uh, engage in that activity. Uh, and part of this is going to be overcoming the self-experience that says you can't do it. That you're not good at doing it. None of that really matters. What matters is that you're actively engaged in looking for the things in your life that are meaningful to you. And then trying to organize your life in such a way that you spend as much of the time that you have each day engaged in those activities that are meaningful. We do, of course, uh, need to uh, attend in some way to uh, collecting the time, energy, and resources that are necessary to make those explorations. But um, we, the thing that really makes uh, life worth uh, overcoming the difficulties of it is the, the pursuit of meaningfulness. And each of us, because of our conditioning being so different, uh, we'll find meaning in different things. There isn't a universal sense of meaningfulness that we all find. We really do find uh, what it is that resonates for us, what is our unique sensibility based on our conditioning. And the more that we can express that unique sensibility in everything that we do, the, the greater the sense of fulfillment tends to be in, in being alive. That all making sense? Sort of. <laughs> so I used to say early on, listening to talks like this, okay, I got it now. How do I do that exactly? <laughs> all very nice but if you don't tell me how i'm supposed to do it i can't do it uh, that's the limitation of exploration so then we do this in in meditation and the one of the ways that we track the experience of self moment by moment is thinking uh tracking thinking um and recognizing some of us are audio thinkers right so that we tend to to have narratives that are in words that have meaning. That's easier to track uh, than visual experience. Visual experiences are images, and the way that visual thinking happens is it really is 
one image rolling into the next, into the next, and morphing and changing. And it's quite unusual for people to report crisp photographic images that are easy to understand and discern exactly what it is that's happening. Whereas uh, most visual experience is impressionistic and this changing, morphing, rolling. Uh, I tend to have extremely colorful and psychedelic, uh, psychedelic coloring of my internal visual thinking, which can be quite fascinating and engaging and sometimes hard to discern the meaning of it. That auditory and visual often combine, but it really gets its oomph from the emotion in the body and the solidness of the body so that you have that 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 sense of self-experience is really the internal auditory thinking, internal visual thinking, emotion in combination with the sense of solidness of the body. So that we're going to do some meditation now that really explores that, the, the self side of experience uh, rather than the world side of experience, which is in some sense the external sound, external sight space, and uh, emotion with the physical sense of the body. Right. Let the meditation go. Coming back into the experience of the present moment and the group setting. How's that? So uh, what's coming up here is we're starting a new level one on October 7th. We're starting uh, a new level two on October 5th. If you're interested in either of those, take a look. Um, that's mostly what's coming up. Um, I offer the teaching freely, uh, but I do hope that if you can, you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website to make a donation. The donation helps support me and the work that Metagroup is doing. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you for your practice, and I hope to see you soon. Bye now.